Hello, this is Lisa, CEO of Sight for White and White Sense, welcoming you to this week's Talking News on Friday, the 9th of February 2024. I have realised that last week I did say 2023, but it was too late. The news had gone out by the time I realised, so apologies for that. This week, Jasmine, Sam and myself have been playing with our machine that we purchased for a few pounds off eBay. The machine prints cards and what we are trying to do is print the CVI, that Certificate of Visual Impairment cards, onto a more permanent credit card style card to give out to people rather than the paper ones that have traditionally been used. We're also looking at putting people's photographs on them and authenticating them with the Isle of Wight and White Sense information. So we've been playing around this week trying to get them to work. It is quite a challenge because to make them large enough print for people to see with the information that has to go on them is actually proving quite difficult. But we will continue and we'll I will report back as things progress. The newsletter has come back to us and it will be sent out on Monday the 12th of February. And apologies if I'm not here next week. I have to admit it's half turn and I am running off to some sunnier climbs. Thank you, Lisa, CEO, Site for White. Here is this week's charity news, the 9th of February. There is no swimming on Monday due to the school half term. It will resume on Monday the 19th of February at the normal time of 1.15 at Medina Leisure Centre in Newport. On Tuesday, Karen will be attending our place at the West White Sports Centre, Moa Place, Freshwater, between 10.30 and 12.30. This is a drop-in community cafe for anyone to attend. Yoga is on Tuesdays at Millbrook House between 1.45 and 2.45. The cost is £4 and this includes refreshments. Our weekly coffee and chat is on Wednesday at Millbrook House between 10 and 11.30. The cost is £2 which includes coffee and cake. Staff are always on hand to help with any inquiries and equipment will be available to try out. Thursday is Mix and Mingle. This group meets between 10.30 and 2pm every week. Booking for this group is essential and at the moment there is a waiting list for people to join. A date for your diary is Wednesday the 28th of February when our Eye on Social group is welcoming Rachel from the Gift to Nature. This group is open to everyone so please come along. It starts at 2pm at Millbrook House. Our quarterly newsletter is being sent out on Monday, so hopefully you will all receive it in the coming week. If for some reason you do not wish to receive it anymore, please call the office and let us know so that we can make a note for our future publication. We are now looking for knitters to start knitting our Easter items. So if you know anyone who knits and would like something to do during these cold winter days, Please let Susan know and she will send out patterns, etc. We also have a limited amount of wool available. Also, if anyone knows a company who would be willing to donate a few cream eggs to help with the fundraising, Susan would love to hear. Our monthly 100 Club has spare balls available. If anyone would like to buy a ball, it's £2 per month or £24 for the full year. The more balls in the draw, the higher the prize money each month. If you would like to take part in our monthly draw, please call the office. This is part of our fundraising activities. 
And if you would like to join any activity or want more details, please call the office on 522205. This is Alison, reading an article from the Isle of Wight Radio entitled Criminals Across the Isle of Wight Will Soon Be Left Feeling Crushed as police step up the fight against those causing misery in our neighbourhoods. Officers now have the powers to start crushing e-scooters and off-road e-motorcycles being used to commit crimes as part of Operation Crush. The launch of this new crackdown will target those illegally using the two-wheeled vehicles to commit further crimes those persistently involved in antisocial behaviour and those putting themselves or other road users at risk of injury. This is all part of the force's commitment to relentlessly pursue criminals using all possible tactics available to disrupt their operations and help make our communities safer. Despite not being legally allowed to be used in public places, we have seen a steady increase in the popularity of what are known as privately owned, powered two-wheel vehicles, P2WVs, such as e-scooters and off-road electric motorcycles. Unfortunately, this has resulted in our officers seeing more and more of them used by those involved in crime and being used dangerously, potentially putting lives at risk. So, officers have taken action to enhance their powers and have used existing legislation that gives them the option to destroy any e-scooter or e-motorcycle that is being used in crime. Inspector Andy Tester said, Given the difficulties there can be stopping these vehicles and identifying the riders, we have noticed them becoming really popular with those committing a variety of different crimes, including those involved in drugs gangs. While we will always try and engage with people first and educate them about the laws around these vehicles, unfortunately not everyone is willing to listen to us and have refused to heed our warnings. This means that whenever our officials deal with a crime involving e-scooters and other P2WVs, they will have another option to consider and where proportionate, this could end up with a disposal notice being served and the vehicle being crushed. We hope that this action shows our communities that we have listened to their concerns about the rising use of these e-scooters and e-motorcycles being ridden dangerously or being used to carry out crime and antisocial behaviour. We believed that this change in policy will help clamp down on those committing numerous offences with these vehicles and act as a significant deterrent. We know that the crushing of these vehicles will disrupt criminal activity because they will need to spend more money to buy replacement vehicles. Some of the electric motorcycles used by criminals can cost several thousands of pounds, so this will have a significant impact on their operations. The police only have to be lucky once. They have to be lucky every time to not be caught. This article read by Howard 
is from the Isle of Wight Radio and concerns a chess congress on the Isle of Wight. The inaugural edition of the Isle of Wight Chess Congress is heading to Ryde this April, it's been announced. The event, which is to take place at Ryde Castle Hotel between Friday 19th and Sunday 21st of April 2024, will be made up of the Open, that's ratings above 1800, the Championship, ratings below 1900, and the Challenger, ratings below 1400. Some of the best players around will battle it out, including former English champion GM Keith Arkell, FM Jonathan Pine, also joins the competition, with many more incredible players set to be announced in the coming weeks. Shore Bayat will be the chief arbiter overseeing the Friday rated Open and ECF sections held in five-round Swiss format. Island Echo is proud to be sponsoring the best Isle of Wight player trophy in 2024. The headline event sponsor is Whitelink. David Williams, head of marketing for Whitelink, says Whitelink Ferries are delighted to support the Isle of Wight Chess Congress this April. The Congress is shaping up to be a superb event with interest from many high-level UK competitors. We very much look forward to this being a successful Congress, putting the Isle of Wight on the map as more than just a wonderful holiday destination. For more information, contact Site for White. This is an article from the Isle of Wight Radio, read by Sue. Bob Seeley makes case for better Isle of Wight hospice deal. MP Bob Seeley has thrown his support behind the island's Mountbatten hospice to secure a better funding deal from the Hampshire and Isle of Wight Integrated Care Board, ICB, the body responsible for giving NHS money to the hospice. Mountbatten does amazing and unique work. It is one of the most remarkable organisations on the island, Mr Seeley said. I don't think I've come across a single person on the Isle of Wight who doesn't know of someone who has received support from Mountbatten. We are all immensely appreciate the work that Mountbatten does. Mr Seeley said that he was concerned that a full funding allocation was not being passed on to Mountbatten from the NHS board and was asking for answers from the ICB as to why this was the case. Mr Seeley said, It is vital that the ICB delivers an uplift in line with inflation on the 3.5 million it already provides to Mountbatten. I know that Mountbatten wants to do all it can to avoid passing these costs on to islanders who already do so much to support the hospice through their generous donations. Mr Seeley has joined forces with Paul Holmes, Conservative MP for Eastleigh, to request a funding uplift from the ICB in line with inflation for both of Mountbatten's hospices, the one on the island and the one in Hampshire. Mountbatten currently receives approximately one third of its income through the ICB. However, there is no means in place for an automatic annual uplift to cover rising costs in line with inflation, leaving the hospice with a shortfall to address each year. Mountbatten's CEO, Nigel Hartley, has recently warned that without the uplift in real terms, income for Mountbatten will be down by approximately £800,000 for 2024-2025. 
Mountbatten is not the only hospice in this situation. A report from the All-Party Parliamentary Group on Hospice and End-of-Life Care released last month highlighted that there have been drastic real-terms cuts in the funding hospices received from ICB, as this has not kept pace with inflation. The report concludes by saying ICBs must commit to delivering their statutory requirement, paying the full cost of commissioned clinical services and offering hospices the same annual increase as the NHS services. In a joint letter to the ICB, the two MPs said, we ask that a fair and proper uplift of 8% is added to the Mountbatten Hospices contracted amount for 2024-2025, in order that they can continue to deliver vital, much needed and valued services to the continually growing number of people who need them. Our understanding is that money is passed to ICBs from the government to cover such uplifts on these contracts, so this should not be an issue. Mr Hartley said, We are very uncomfortable with how things stand at the moment. We do not want to lose our hospice or any element of the work we do, so we need this sorted out. We are very fortunate that our local communities really get behind us with our fundraising efforts, and we are so very thankful for that. Thank you to everyone who has sent messages of support and thank you to Bob and Paul for their support as well. I hope we can sort this out quickly though, so that we can continue to support islanders with all the support and care they need at the end of their lives. This is an article from the Island Echo, read by Terry. Time to bid for Isle of Wight Foundation grant support. Charities and community-led organisations working to tackle social exclusion on the island are once again being invited to bid for grant support from the Isle of Wight Foundation. Now in its tenth year, the foundation, comprising the companies behind Island Roads, has awarded grants of between £3,000 for projects involved in helping build better communities or supporting people to access employment or housing. To date, it has awarded grants totalling around £800,000 for such projects. Having recently announced grant awards to nine local groups, including Wessex Cancer Trust, Ability Dogs for Young People, Vectis Radio and the Way Forward programme, the Foundation is now seeking applications for the next round of funding. Any applications that meet the Foundation's criteria are encouraged, whether from a group applying for the first time or having previously applied. The companies making up the Foundation are Ringway Island Roads, Island Roads Services, Avinci Concessions and Meridium. Chairman Rob Gillespie said, Since 2014 it has been a real pleasure not just to support the work of so many good causes, but also to establish really strong links with the groups we have helped. Once again, we would like to encourage community interest companies and 
not-for-profit organisations involved in bringing communities together or supporting people with training to apply for the next round of funding from our foundation. One group to have established really close links with the foundation is The Way Forward. Based in Newport, but with clients from across the island, the organisation which provides support and sessions, training and employment for people with disabilities and autism has received four grants totalling over £33,000 from the foundation. Chief Executive Tracy Hill has said, We cannot thank the Isle of Wight Foundation enough for all the fantastic support they have given us over many years. They, along with the staff at Island Roads, have made such a difference to the lives of so many of our clients. As well as grant funding, eligible projects are supported by Island Roads employees who are given the opportunity to be project sponsors and give their time to share their specialist skills with grant recipients to help them deliver their projects. Funding applications can be made until midday on Monday the 6th of May this year. This is Alison reading an article from Isle of Wight Radio entitled Proactive Programme Approved to Tackle Isle of Wight Food Hygiene Backlog. A proactive programme has been approved to tackle a backlog of food hygiene inspections on the Isle of Wight. It comes after the issue was raised by the Isle of Wight Council's internal auditor. The backlog included more than 200 food serving, making or selling businesses which were uninspected. However, there is a shortage of staff in the Isle of Wight Council's environmental health team to carry out the inspections and has been for years. The position is further exacerbated by the inability to recruit more officers despite multiple attempts. The plan is based on managing risk and recognises the team is not able to achieve all of the intervention requirements for some lower risk premises, the council said. The authority is not fully meeting the requirements of the Food Standards Agency, FSA, regarding the frequency of inspecting the more than 2,000 food establishments on the island. As of November the 8th last year, there were 888 premises that were overdue a food hygiene inspection on the island. Earlier in the year, in February, the number stood at 1,118. The FSA has, however, previously said it is assured by the Council's service and its plans to carry on. The food safety body specifies how long there should be between inspections, ranging from six months to every three years, based on their risk rating. The team is now targeting resources where there is the greatest need to protect the public's health and make the most impact. It focuses on the premises that are deemed the highest risk those that have scored two or below in the National Food Hygiene Rating Scheme and the date since they were last inspected. 
The team has also given a priority to rating new businesses as they are failing to do so in a timely manner. 28 days, as stated by the FSA. But there is some flexibility. The Council has said it recognises, without any prior approval or licence, new businesses pose a risk, as the operator may have very limited knowledge of food legislation, standards and safe practices. The programme was approved by the Cabinet Member for Community Protection, Councillor Karen Lucioni, at the end of January. This article from the Isle of Wight Radio read by Howard, concerns the budget on the Isle of Wight. A near 5% increase in council tax is on the cards for islanders as the Isle of Wight Council reveals its budget plans tonight, that's Wednesday. County Hall has also revealed it may enter the 2024-5 financial year in a structural deficit and has already had to use £1.2 million in savings. On Monday, the government announced it would give the Isle of Wight Council £4 million as part of the local government funding settlement recognising our island status. It's £3 million more than usual, but falls a long way short of the £23.7 million the council claims is the true cost of being apart from the mainland. Under the budget plans, the authority will be asking the average band B taxpayer to pay £1,908.39 a year towards services. That's an increase of £90 over 12 months for a band D property compared to £1,817.61 in 2023-24. Increases in payment for the Hampshire and Isle of Wight Fire and Rescue Service and Hampshire and Isle of Wight Constabulary, as well as town, parish and community councils, are on top. Charges are expected to rise for cremations and marriages, making County Hall an extra £137,000 a year. What's included in the Isle of Wight Council budget for 2024-25? Admin staff roles lost among those working on children's and family services, saving £92,000. Reduced contact centre opening times, no Saturday service on weekdays, 9am to 5pm instead of 8am to 6pm, saving £29,400. Bulky waste, collection of rubbish from schools and the Collection Plus service to go up in price, making £9,800. 50% increase in the charge for a replacement concessionary bus pass to £15, making £3,000. Reduction in the money paid to transport operators to cover concessionary fares, saving £500,000. Less council officer support for leading Isle of Wight council members, saving £15,000. Restructuring of libraries and heritage services, saving £24,000. Charging schools more for improved HR advice, making £5,000. Extended joint approach to funding Ride Help Centre, saving £3,100. Islanders using respite services at the Goldings and the Adelaide will be charged more, making £63,100. New council projects could see £30,000 spent, 
to resurface the car park at County Hall for health and safety reasons. £86,000 could be spent refurbishing the offices at Seaclose to provide coroner's court facilities. Highway drainage schemes have also been proposed to reduce flooding at a cost of £400,000. The budget would also include a 75% discount for those on the local council tax support scheme, while the exceptional hardship fund will be scrapped. Of the proposed council tax increase, 2% would go towards adult social care, which faces unavoidable cost pressures. Between adult and children's social care, the Isle of Wight Council has had to find an additional £11.3 million just to keep services at their existing levels. Built into the 2024-25 budget, which could be approved when the Isle of Wight Council meets in full later this month, is £2.75 million in savings. These must be found in addition to today's proposed budget plans. The Alliance Administration, which has proposed the budget released today, says it aims to continue to reverse the cycle of cuts and has blamed the lack of government funding for the changes. Other groups may offer their own alternative budget plans and a decision will be made at the meeting on February 21st. Plans agreed by delegated decision to hike parking charges by 10% per hour, making around £400,000 per year, have been scrapped. Hello, this is an article from the Island Echo, read by Sue. Police hunt male suspect after teenager sexually assaulted in alleyway. Police are appealing for a suspect to come forward as well as any witnesses after a 17-year-old girl was sexually assaulted in an alleyway in Newport. It's said that on the evening of Monday the 29th of January, the teenage girl was approached at Downside Playing Fields on Pan Estate by a man she did not know. He offered to walk her home. Then, at around 2050, the 17-year-old was sexually assaulted by the man in a nearby alleyway. The male, who remains at large, is described as white, slim, tall, softly spoken with dark curly hair and wearing black clothing. Officers were made aware of the incident by a third party around 24 hours later. Since then, they have been scoping out CCTV in the area and have spoken to the victim. Now, over a week later, Hampshire and Isle of Wight Constabulary is appealing for witnesses to come forward. Officers would like to hear from anyone who witnessed... Anything or saw a man matching the above description in the area at the time. The suspect is also being urged to come forward to speak to police. Anyone with information is asked to contact police on 101, quoting 4424004463. You can also submit information online at www.hampshire.police.uk. Alternatively, you can contact the independent charity Crime Stoppers 100% anonymously on 0800-555-111 or via their anonymous online form at crimestoppers-uk.org. This is an article from Isle of Wight Radio, read by Terry. Cow's teenager found guilty of planning Isle of Wight Festival terrorist attack. Following an investigation by Counter-Terrorism Policing South East, 
that's C-T-P-S-E, a 16-year-old boy from Cowes on the Isle of Wight has been convicted of terrorism offences. The boy was charged with preparation of terrorist acts under Section 5 of the Terrorism Act of the 17th of July 2022. He was further charged on the 4th of November 2022 with three counts of dissemination of terrorist publications under Section 2 of the Terrorism Act 2006 and having an article with a blade or point in a public place, contrary to Section 139 of the Criminal Justice Act 1988. The boy was found guilty by a jury of all counts at Kingston Crown Court. The boy, who cannot be named or identified for legal reasons, was arrested on the 11th of July 2022 by Counter-Terrorism Policing South East, again that's CTPSE, with assistance from Hampshire and Isle of Wight Constabulary. He was planning to attack people he believed had insulted Islam. He was found with a knife in his possession when he was arrested. The boy also shared terrorist publications with others, the ideology of which was influenced by Daesh. He had an Islamist terrorism ideology. Detective Chief Superintendent Ollie Wright, head of CTPSE, said, Today is not a day for celebration. There can never be satisfaction when a child so young is convicted of such serious offences. Our primary objective is always to protect our communities from those who wish to do them harm. In this case, unfortunately, we found someone who had been radicalised by Daesh propaganda into believing it was acceptable to hurt innocent people. CTPSE had to act quickly with the help of our local police partners to arrest and detain him. This was to protect the public and establish fully what his plans were. We hope he can get the help he needs to learn how wrong and dangerous these views are and that he can become a functioning member of society in future. Hampshire and Isle of Wight Constabulary's Area Commander for the Isle of Wight, Superintendent Rob Mitchell, added, This is a really tragic case of a young boy who found himself exploited by Daesh propaganda. The most vulnerable people in our communities across Hampshire and on the Isle of Wight are at the greatest risk of being drawn towards terrorist activity and potentially causing harm to themselves and others. We have excellent working relationships and information sharing agreements with our partners that allow us to quickly identify those at risk and protect people from harm. Cases of this nature are, thankfully, relatively rare, 
but I do understand this investigation will have had a significant impact on the people of Cowes and the Isle of Wight. No one is exempt from the risk of extremism and terrorism, but together, action counters terrorism, and if you have any concerns that someone you know has been or is being radicalised, you can act early to get them the help they need and deserve. The boy is due to be sentenced on the 15th of April at Kingston Crown Court. This is Alison reading an article from the Island Echo entitled Visitor Economy Conference Here's Ireland Must Encourage More Overseas Visitors. Medina Theatre was the venue for the Visit Isle of Wight VIOW Visitor Economy Conference last week with speakers and delegates welcomed by host David Curtis Brignall, MBE. Host David began by pointing out that visitors to the island were not spending as much, with 67% of visitors cautious of major spending, leading to a trend of domestic breaks rather than longer holidays. In a video insert, Bob Seeley, MP, pledged his full support to tourism, only to then appear at the back of the theatre, waving to the host. Bob was also on hand later speaking with stakeholders and guest speakers. Andrew Stokes, OBE, Director of Visit England, delivered the keynote address, sharing the overall national picture for the visitor economy. Other areas of the UK, such as the island, need to encourage visitors from abroad to change this habit. 30% of the island's economy is based on tourism, but recently this has been tempered by the cost of living factor. Before the opening of the conference and during the lunch break, stakeholders were encouraged to visit displays by local companies and organisations. One of these was the Isle of Wight Biosphere. There are only seven biosphere regions in the UK, with the Isle of Wight being one of them. Sustainability across all aspects of tourism was highlighted with green transport, a topic for discussion. A duo of speakers from the mainland heaped praise on the island bus network operated by Southern Vectis, saying how they had enjoyed their journeys which were punctual and efficiently run. £2 fares were helping to get people away from car travel and VIOW has arranged special Rover bus fares with Southern Vectis. Rachel Randall, founder and CEO of HTP Apprenticeship College, gave her views on recruiting a skilled workforce and how to retain it revealing that 84% of employers experienced problems recruiting staff and 75% were affected by staff turnover. Latest campaigns were shown and with the latest Channel 5 programme based on the island commencing its run on the evening following the conference, the island was getting publicity. This article read by Howard from the Island Echo concerns portable loo problems in Ryde. 
a police sergeant has called for CCTV to be installed on the beach at Ride after public toilets there were completely obliterated last month. The damage was condemned as vandalism by Ride Town Council and led to the closure of the men's loos at Apri. Now portable toilets have been installed on the seafront and an investigation has been launched by Hampshire and Isle of Wight Constabulary. On Monday, 5th of February, at a meeting of Ride Town Council, a senior officer admitted there were no leads and he blamed a lack of CCTV. Sergeant Matt Brown said officers were patrolling the area and had requested the possibility of installing surveillance cameras to be looked at. Describing the damage, Councillor Michael Lilly, representative for Apley and Elmfield, said the toilets had been completely obliterated. It wasn't just vandalism, but a real smash job. He said the toilets are a very important leisure community visitor site, adding that it would cost the town council and its residents to restore them to working order. Appealing for anyone who has seen any unusual activity or noticed any damage to get in touch in a bid to work out when it had happened, the town council apologised for their ongoing closure. Hello, this is an article from the Isle of Wight Radio, read by Sue. Isle of Wight Council launches school transport consultation in bid to save money. Some Isle of Wight parents could soon have to pay more to send their children to school, while others could have their entitlement to transport taken away, as the council looks to save money. As costs continue to rise, the Isle of Wight Council has launched a public consultation on its home-to-school transport policy. Despite taking fewer children to school than in 2012, the cost of do doing so has risen to 4.3 million last year, as there is more demand for pupils needing taxis to take them to school. The authority now takes 1,662 children a day to school, free of charge, who all meet the strict eligibility criteria as set by government. To help fund the service, the council is proposing six changes to the home-to-school transport policy, which was last updated in 2015. The Isle of Wight Council, taking examples from authorities in Kent and Essex, is now looking to create more flexible transport arrangements. These could include a 46% increase on how much parents pay for spare seats on buses, jumping from £390 to £570 a year from September. The cost could then rise with inflation each year starting in September 2025. Where children are granted an exception to the home to school policy and provided transport through the council, a charge could be introduced to parents depending on how far they live from the school. It would start at £640 for up to five miles and rise to £1,419 for over 10 miles. Students in years 10 and 11 who move out of the area during their GCSEs but wish to remain at their current school would no longer be entitled to travel from September. The council says there is no legal requirement to do so. It has just been providing the service to avoid disruption to the pupil's education at a crucial time. Where deemed beneficial, students with special education needs would be offered independent travel training.
so they can be prepared for adulthood. The training would be offered in consultation with the pupil's parents. The council recognises it would not be suitable for the majority of pupils and would help fewer than five pupils a year. The need for passenger assistance for pupils with learning or physical disabilities would be regularly reviewed if the pupil's needs change. Currently, there is no set review system. The parental mileage allowance could be replaced with personal transport budgets so parents can make the suitable travel arrangements to get their child to and from school. Council officers previously said last year the authority was operating close to a statutory minimum of service our charge and funding was needed from government. Three changes are also proposed for the council's post-16 transport service, which it does not legally have to provide. The authority currently offers travel for 151 post-16 students with learning disabilities to access the closest suitable provision for them. Now the council is looking to charge the students' parents for the transport. The consultation will end on March the 13th and the final decision will be made by the Isle of Wight's Cabinet in the coming months. This is an article from the Island Echo, read by Terry. Concerns raised to Secretary of State over number of island children not in education. Isle of Wight MP Bob Seeley and Police and Crime Commissioner PCC Donna Jones have raised concerns with Education Secretary Gillian Keegan about the rise in electively home-educated, that's E-H-E, students on the island. Bob and Donna have sought clarification of the measures in place to ensure that all students are receiving a suitable education. Latest figures show there are approximately 520 E-H-E students on the island. The number of children being homeschooled on the island is now over three times the England average, 2.92 and 0.91% respectively. In a joint letter to Gillian Keegan, Bob Seeley and Donna Jones have said, whilst we respect the choice of some parents to home educate, we question the very sharp rise in EHE students and school absence following the COVID-19 pandemic. Local authorities are obliged to make inquiries to ensure that children are receiving a suitable education, There is no obligation for parents to register or inform their local authority about home education. As you will know, there are no legal requirements for EHE students to acquire qualifications, learn the national curriculum or have their progress formally assessed. As such, monitoring the progress of the significant number of new EHE children relies heavily on local authorities' diligence. The island's MP and PCC went on to raise concerns about the life chances of some EHE students who may not be receiving a suitable education, stating... 
Not receiving a good education is a permanent blight on the lives of young people and the social cohesion of our communities. Persistently absent pupils who lack the support they need are thought to be three times more likely to commit an offence by age 17 than those who are fully attending school. Mr Seeley adds, We need to understand why some islanders are opting to take their children out of mainstream education and seek assurances that they are not being forgotten by the local authority. I'll be writing to councillors about my concerns. Donna has added, I am concerned that some home-educated children could be at a greater risk of being exploited, involved in antisocial behaviour or are committing crime. We need to understand why parents are taking their children out of school and whether, having made that choice, they are being adequately supported. This is the second part of the Talking News, read today by me, Morris. And me, Madeline. Grammy win for Band Wet Legs Remix. The Isle of Wight band Wet Leg were one of the first winners at the 2024 Grammy Awards pre-telecast ceremony. The 66th annual ceremony was held at the Crypto.com Arena in Los Angeles, with the main ceremony presented by comedian Trevor Noah. Billie Eilish and Kylie Minogue were among the first music stars to win prizes, along with the island band Wet Leg. The band, fronted by Rian Teasdale and Hester Chambers, won in the remixed recording category for Wagging Tongue, Wet Leg Remix. Wet Leg Remixes, Depeche Mode. Wet Leg will be performing in the UK this summer, including at Victorious in Southsea. Farm Demonstration A public demonstration over the future of Harbour Farm went ahead at the weekend. On Sunday, more than 60 Harbour Farm Action Group, that's HFAG members, and people supportive of its cause gathered at the site on Embankment Road in Bembridge. Since buying the land 10 years ago, the Environment Agency has let it go to rack and ruin, says the group. This has resulted in derelict and dangerous buildings and once beautiful gardens and orchards being overgrown with impenetrable brambles. The HFAG says it has been asking for public access to the farm and grounds for two years. The group wants to see an accessible nature walk with full disabled access and bird hides. The pinnacle of its ambition is to see a joint wildlife organisation visitor centre erected. It was only after a sustained campaign, including a petition now signed by more than 1,100 people and months of emails, complaints and letters asking to be heard, that the manager at last contacted the group on January 24, 2024, said HFAG Chair Andrew Holman. Other concessions gained by the group include the removal of barbed wire from gates, details of the lease showing what land is rented to the RSPB who manage the neighbouring Braiding Marsh Bird Reserve, what is left under EA control and when these agreements will run out. 
We have offered to construct and pay for the walk and bird hides ourselves. The Action Group will continue to try to liaise and work productively with both agency workers and the RSPB. An EA spokesperson said, We purchased Harbour Farm in 2014 to ensure the conservation and enhancement of sites of special scientific interest. The land is leased to the RSPB, who recognise the importance of managing the site for the protection of bird species and wildlife. The wetlands are of international importance and therefore we have an obligation to maintain the wetland habitat and water levels. Mindless fly-tipping on protected site. Fly-tipped items were dumped on protected and conserved land this week. The items have since been removed and the Isle of Wight Council is seeking information to prosecute those responsible. The local authority labelled the fly-tipping off Braiding Downs Road an absolute disgrace and an unnecessary burden on taxpayers. Six large appliances, including a fridge and a bathtub, were dumped on land which sits within the Isle of Wight National Landscape, formerly called an area of outstanding natural beauty. Two days after the county press reported on the fly-tipping, the council has confirmed it has cleared the items. Natasha Dix, the Council's Service Director for Waste, Environment and Planning, said there is absolutely no excuse for fly-tipping and littering. Both amount to environmental vandalism. It blights neighbourhoods and the countryside, is a threat to local wildlife and livestock, is a source of pollution and a danger to public health. The latest incident is an absolute disgrace and an unnecessary burden on taxpayers as we look to clear up the site. Necklace in hospital stolen, insist couple. An Isle of Wight couple have been left angry and frustrated after a three-year battle with the island's hospital over a missing gold necklace. Colin Balfour from Freshwater believes a sentimental 22-carat necklace bought from India for £1,300 was stolen from his wife Jacqueline while she lay in her hospital bed. The Isle of Wight NHS Trust has always denied the claims. Colin, 79, reached out to the county press after reading our front page story two weeks ago which revealed a spike in the number of personal items disappearing at St Mary's Hospital. Colin said he has been passed from pillar to post in his attempts to get answers. Jacqueline was admitted to St Mary's on February the 17th, 2021. Before going for a CT scan, she recalls two nurses taking her gold necklace off and saying they would put it safely away. As she was due to be transferred to Queen Alexandra Hospital in Portsmouth, she asked for the jewellery to be returned. At first, she said she was told the key to the safe had been lost, and then she told the sa- was told the safe was empty. I was really cross, she said. The necklace was something I'd saved up to get, and I had it for years. Colin, who could not go to the hospital because of Covid restrictions, set out to get the necklace back. Over three years, he exchanged dozens of emails and letters with the Trust. He involved Swan, 
an independent advocacy charity, and said he reported the alleged thief to the police, but it was not investigated. Collins said the trust interviewed some staff, but nothing came of it, and he was maddened when it was suggested he claim it back on his home insurance. As the case was going on and on, in July last year, the couple reluctantly accepted a goodwill gesture of £500 from the Trust. They said they wanted to share their story so it does not happen to anyone else. An Isle of Wight NHS Trust spokesperson said, We are sorry this piece of jewellery has been lost while in the care of the NHS. We carried out a thorough investigation and unfortunately the item was not found. Our clinical teams work hard to look after all of our patients and their belongings in very busy departments. However, we accept that it is upsetting when important and sentimental items are misplaced. We urge patients to leave precious items at home or send them home with family and friends at the earliest opportunity. Police plea after toilet obliterated. A police sergeant has called for CCTV to be installed at a beach after public toilets there were completely obliterated. The damage was condemned as vandalism by Ride Town Council and led to the closure of the men's loos at Apley. Instead, portable toilets have been installed on the seafront and an investigation has been launched by Hampshire and Isle of Wight Constabulary. On Monday, at a meeting of Ride Town Council, a senior officer admitted there were no leads as he blamed a lack of CCTV. Sergeant Matt Brown said officers were patrolling the area and had requested the possibility of installing surveillance cameras to be looked at. Describing the damage, Councillor Michael Lilly, representative for Apley and Elmfield, said the toilets had been completely obliterated and it wasn't just vandalism but a real smash job. He said the toilets are a very important leisure community visitor site, adding it would cost the town council and its residents to restore them to working order. Appealing for anyone who had seen any unusual activity or noticed any damage to get in touch, the town council apologised for their ongoing closure. Red Jet 4 Missing Vessel The Red Funnel Red Jet Passenger Catamaran Service has been missing one of its three vessels since the end of 2023, Red Jet 4. The vessel experienced problems during 2023, at one point returning to service, then immediately breaking down. On December 30th, it was withdrawn from service due to a technical issue on its starboard main engine, an issue that was also causing problems the month before. A week later, Red Funnel announced a revised timetable would be in place due to Red Jet 4 still being out of action and Red Jet 7 going for its annual refit. The County Press asked Red Funnel for an update last week. A spokesperson said, The initial fault to the starboard engine was discovered on December 30th and she was taken out of service the same day. We're, we're working to resolve an ongoing engine issue. The vessel returning to service will be determined by the engineers working on her. 
While Redjet 4 remains out of action, Redjet 7 returned to service after its refit, but Redjet 6 was withdrawn due to an oil leak. Town Council agrees bank plan as precept set for rise. Two town councils have agreed their precepts for 2024-25 and both will see a rise. Ride Town Council will charge around £10 more a year for its council tax add-on. In 2024 and 2025 after it agreed to increase charges by 7.4%. A banned C property taxpayer in the town will have to pay £158.59 spread over 12 months up from £147.64 this year. Finance Committee Chair, Councillor Phil Jordan, said the cash would allow the Town Council to continue to invest, providing support for cultural organisations, protecting the town's heritage and providing vital and necessary services across the town. Ride Town Council will help pay for Isle of Wight Council Planning Enforcement Officer to tackle eyesores and planning breaches. £5,000 has been uh, ring-fenced for the skate park on the Esplanade. All but one of the councillors voted, voted in favour of the increase. Councillor Les Kirkby raised an issue with £10,000 in grant funding allocated to this summer's Beach Weekender event, but officers said it had previously been agreed. Grants have also been awarded to Isle of Wight Pride, New Carnival Club, John's Club and Armed Forces Day. At the same meeting, Ride Town Council agreed to buy the empty Nat West building in St Thomas's Square using a £466,000 loan, costing more than £30,000 per year in repayments over 30 years. Councillors agreed, subject to the outcome of an ongoing public consultation and if the purchase goes through, it could become the Town Council's new home. The 2025-26 budget will be impacted by the loan. Meanwhile, Newport and Carysbrook Community Council has agreed a 2024-25 precept increase of 5.1%, an increase of 9 pence per week for a band D household. Described as a steady state budget by finance lead Councillor Jeff Brodie, the council will continue to fund four sets of public toilets and four recreation grounds. It will subsidise allotments and pay for school crossing patrols. Also funded is the number 39 bus service in East Newport, an environment officer and litter and dog waste bins, as well as support for planning enforcement. Priest on a Vesper takes on parishes. The new priest in charge of four parishes on the Isle of Wight will be easy to spot. He'll be herring around the countryside in leathers and a dog collar, riding on an orange Vesper. The Reverend Tony Lawrence has been appointed as priest in charge designate for parishes in Shanklin, Lake, Godsill and Ventnor. He'll enjoy travelling between the churches and people's homes on his Vesper scooter. Father Tony has just completed a two-year curacy serving, serving in St Catherine's and Holy Trinity Ventnor and in Bonchurch. He was keen to stay on the Isle of Wight, having lived here for 25 years. These churches fitted in with his Anglo-Catholic tradition. The parishes of St Saviour's on the Cliff Shanklin, Church of the Good Shepherd Lake, All Saints Godseal 
and St Albans Ventnor are all members of the Society of St Wilfrid and St Hilda. He was part of the congregation at St Saviour's Shanklin when he was selected for ordination. He came from a non-religious family but felt a calling from an early age to become a priest. Yet Father Tony was working as a gardener and felt his lack of education would hold him back. <clears throat> Excuse me. He started biking, got into drink and drugs and was even contemplating suicide at one point. He says it was a prayer to God that saved him. I had this strong desire to be a priest, but felt God wouldn't want me as my education hadn't been great, he said. I'd roar up and down the country on my Vespa and I got into drink and drugs. Things hit a low point when I disappeared with the intention of taking my own life. His faith saved him. Tony met his wife Jules and started attending his local church in Cheltenham. The couple moved to the island in 1999 and in 2004 Tony had an epiphany. My wife had been on these pilgrimages but it took me 20 years to actually get there, said Tony. Ordained as deacon in 2021 and as a priest in 2022, Tony served his curacy under the Reverend Hugh Wright, who has now retired. Fundraiser to Adapt Home A fundraiser set up to help raise money to adapt a rugby player's home following a horror injury which left him paralysed last year has reached its target. Luke Orton suffered a life-changing injury while taking part in a beach rugby tournament in Apley last July breaking his C5 vertebrae and leaving him paralysed from the chest down without the use of his hands. He spent six weeks in ICU at Southampton General and has been undergoing rehabilitation at Salisbury District Hospital. Hospitalised ever since the accident, his family say Luke remains positive as he considers his wheelchair-bound future. In November, the county press spoke to Luke's parents who recounted what happened. Luke is looking forward to coming home soon and for this to happen the family sought to raise funds to adapt his home. A Just Giving page was set up by his parents to raise £20,000 and 502 supporters have raised more than £24,400. Support Luke at www.justgiving.com crowdfunding Luke's Home Fund. Sandown and Shanklin RFC, Luke's team, will host a fundraising day on February 24th with matches and a charity dinner, grand auction and raffle. Landslide investigation update expected. A public meeting will be held later this month to discuss the findings of an independent investigation into the Bonchurch landslide. Leeson Road, which connects Shanklin with Bonchurch, was closed on December the 10th, 2023, due to a landslide which had been described as one of the largest of its kind on the south coast of England. Following the landslide, the Isle of Wight Council commissioned an independent investigation and risk assessment of the area. In parallel to the council study, Island Rose has also commissioned engineers to assess the feasibility of opening part of or all of the road. The local community will be updated 
once the information on the two studies becomes available, says Council Leader Phil Jordan. A public meeting will be held at St Catherine's Church on February the 29th at 6pm to update residents. The meeting will also include updates on Fentner Eastern Esplanade, the Environment Agency's Fentner Coastal Programme and Island Road's progress on the Reen Howe Walk, the Cascade. Help solve warm letter mystery. The challenge is on to reunite a lost letter with its rightful family 80 years after it was sent from Ride. Dated January the 16th, 1944, the handwritten correspondence was sent to Arthur Rayner and addressed to Scarborough's Grand Hotel. Decades later, it was found by Peter MacArthur while he was carrying out some building work on the impressive Seafront Hotel. He discovered the touching letter from a mum to her son underneath the floorboards and he decided to stash it away for safety. For a while, Peter forgot he had, he, he had it, but having recently rediscovered it, he wants to find its rightful owner. Peter told the county press, I do hope someone from the Rayner family will contact your paper. I am sure they would be pleased to see this lovely letter from mother to son at such a difficult time in their lives. In 1939, a specially arranged head count was carried out at the start of the Second World War. Sometimes known as the Wartime Doomsday Book, this historic census shows 21-year-old aircraft apprentice Arthur living with his parents, Amy and Robert, in Southfield Terrace, Bedsworth Road, Ride. By 1944, Arthur had relocated to the Grand Hotel in Scarborough, Yorkshire. Wartime records unsealed in the 1970s show the building was used to host trainee aircrew during their uh, basic two-month-long training course. The envelope identifies Arthur as part of the RAF's number 10 Initial Training Wing, or ITW, with the flight squadron. In the letter, there is no mention of war. Instead, Arthur's mum writes, I am hoping to find you still keeping fit and well. The weather is lovely, just like spring. Auntie Doris and Harry were over from Portsmouth on Friday. In fact, Betty had dinner with them. Amy asks Arthur if he would like any marmalade and jam, or perhaps he would rather wait to have them when he is home. She promises they can also enjoy a Christmas pudding. And she concludes, Today is Sunday, and I am wondering what you are doing. In two days' time, you have been gone three months. Time flies, doesn't it? My dear, I must wish you cheerio for now. From all at home, God bless you, my dear. Best love from mother. Help us find the relatives of Airman Arthur Rayner and his parents, Amy and Robert. And you can email the editor at iwcp.co.uk with any information. The end of the road. The Isle of Wight Council has hit a roadblock in the quest to save the military road from coastal erosion. The Department for Transport has made it crystal clear that it will not fund efforts to save the iconic road, according to the leader of the Isle of Wight Council. Councillor Phil Jordan told the Isle of Wight Observer that although the National Trust are potentially willing to gift land to reroute the road, the DFT is firm that it will not fund it. Speaking about the Council's plans, Councillor Jordan said 
we are getting a ballpark cost for a business case of between 250,000 and 350,000. We can continue to speak to landowners, but it appears a funding bid to the DFT would be unsuccessful. They have made it crystal clear that the road does not meet the criteria for funding. Roads and highways are usually funded by DFT. I cannot say if other government impart- if other government departments might have funding opportunities, but I will be speaking with them at an early opportunity. Currently, we continue to work towards a solution, but are mindful that the council cannot fund the build of a new road, and we would need total and direct funding from the government. The news comes after a senior council officer warned this week that the road could disappear within two years. Colin Rowlands, the council's director of community services, told a council committee this week it would be anything between two and ten years before the military road is washed away by the sea. Regardless of any intervention we try to engineer, that is likely to happen. Any decision is not just based on the need to protect the natural environment and economic and social factors, but also on the reality of the coast is eroding at such a rate you would not be able to engineer yourself out of that situation. The military road is an important tourist asset as well as a key transport route, but that alone is unlikely to save it. The circumstances are eerily similar to those of the B3191 in Somerset, closed last January after geotechnical surveys raised fears about coastal erosion. It was an important scenic route for holidaymakers and regularly used for diversions when the A39 was closed or congested. Described by local MP Ian Little Granger as a vital transport link and with the closure described as a devastating blow to the nearby town of Watchet, six schemes were proposed to reopen it, ranging it in cost from 14.5 to 71.7 million. The preferred option to reroute it inland was estimated at 30 million. Local politicians, including the MP, pledged to do everything possible to save the route. However, the spirited campaign came to an end this week when the permanent closure of the road was announced. The latest campaign to save the military road included a Facebook Save the Military Road Isle of Wight page, which quickly amassed more than 3,000 followers came after new fissures appeared next to the road as it crosses Afton Down. That, according to the council, is not thought to be the most vulnerable stretch. Instead, the area between Brook and Compton Farm is of the most concern. At places, the road is just yards from the cliff edge. Some campaigners are pinning their hopes on the military road being an A road, a major route that links regional towns or cities, but there are no funds or plans to open another part of the same road under Cliff Drive, closed since February 2014. 
It is unclear whether another hope for campaigners that the government will stump up the money in an election year is likely to have any traction, but any potential decision may be adversely affected by the recent landslip, one of the largest in Europe, forcing the closure of Leeson Road in Bonchurch. It appears Councillor Chris Jarman's words, reported two weeks ago in the Isle of Wight Observer, enjoy the military road while it is still there, may sadly prove wise advice. Trial for three who deny Ventnor child abduction. Three islanders accused of child abduction offences will stand trial in May. Tyler Wilkinson of Atkinson Drive in Newport, Guy Taylor of Lowtherville Road in Ventnor and Jason Paul Blake of Cornwall Road, Ventnor denied taking away a child in care without lawful authority when they appeared at the Isle of Wight Magistrates Court on Tuesday, February the 6th. The alleged offences happened in Ventnor on January the 2nd. The taking a child away charges relate to alleged child abduction warning notices issued by police that prohibit association with a specified person aged under 18 years. Mr Wilkinson, 20, also denied shoplifting, stealing three packets of Golden Virginia tobacco from the Central Convenience Store on Newport Road on January 1st. Mr Blake, 37, also pleaded not guilty to assaulting a man in Ventnor on January 5th. Mr Wilkinson and Mr Taylor were bailed to reappear for trial on May the 2nd, while Mr Blake was bailed to reappear for trial on May the 8th. The trials will take place at the same venue. Patient bit and kicked security man. A man who bit and kicked a hospital security guard after he was told to stop vaping has been spared jail. Drew Whitaker of Culver Parade Sandown was sentenced at the Isle of Wight Crown Court on February the 5th, around 18 months after the offence took place. He previously denied assault, occasioning bodily harm, but was found guilty by magistrates following a trial on January the 4th. Court heard how on August the 7th, 2022, the security team at St Mary's Hospital Newport were dealing with an awkward male who had a head injury who had tried to leave the hospital through the ambulance entrance. Security noted the man, Whitaker, had lost consciousness while leaning against the laundry trolley and had to be put in a wheelchair and then a bed. Prosecuting Robert Shellard said Whitaker had become agitated telling staff, if you are not going to look at my head, then let me leave. While laying in his bed, Whitaker was told not to use a vape by a security guard, but he ignored the request. The security guard tried to take the vape away, but Whitaker kicked out at him. He proceeded to shout and swear, the court was told, and labelled the security guards pathetic wannabe coppers. Whitaker then bit one of the guards on the right forearm, which left superficial lacerations. Police were called and Whitaker was taken to Newport Police Station. Whitaker has four previous convictions for nine offences, one of which was for assaulting an emergency worker. Defending Oliver Hirsch said 
2022 was a difficult year for Whitaker. He said Whitaker suffered a head injury so severe that he was having fits, and the police station at the police station and glass was found in his head. He said Whitaker could not remember much of the incident and has not offended since. Judge Newton Prince agreed Whitaker was making good progress and said it was not in the public interest to disrupt this. Whitaker was handed a community order for 18 months. He was also ordered to carry out 30 rehabilitation activity requirement days. Seapool could be a starter. Grant funding has been awarded towards the next steps in creating a tidal sea pool. Swim the White CIC, in collaboration with the University of Southampton Centre for the South, has been awarded almost £6,000. The money will be used by a team of academics to take the results of its recent Isle of Wight Sea Pool survey further by undertaking more detailed analysis of the data, carrying out some public events and using the results to create a policy document that supports the pool's feasibility study report. The money came from the Centre for the South's New Things Fund. A report will be delivered to the Isle of Wight Council next year. The survey was carried out over the summer and achieved almost 1,200 responses from island residents and visitors, providing insight into people's sea swimming behaviour. From the initial analysis, more than 88% of the respondents said they enjoyed swimming in the sea with 16% of those sea swimming at least once a week. The current barriers to sea swimming include concerns about pollution, 75%, safety including risks of deep water, currents and tide, 54%, and water temperature, 37%. Of the respondents, 85% said they would use an accessible sea pool. 11% thought they might use one and 4% said they wouldn't use a sea pool. Sue Barker, Swim the White Sea Pool lead, said, We are delighted that this project has been seen by the New Things Fund to be of real value. The momentum and support we are gaining for a tidal sea pool is growing daily, and we believe strongly that a pool in Yavaland will deliver positive benefits to our whole community. It is planned that the first stage of the study will be completed in the first half of next year. Further funding is needed to complete the study and Swim the White is seeking financial sponsorship, goods in kind and people prepared to give their time and skills. This is a major stigma for the Isle of Wight. A wheelchair user who holidayed on the island feels discouraged from wanting to come again after he was humiliatingly ejected from a White Link ferry. Terry Holt says his holiday was wonderful but was spoiled when he was twice told to get out of his car despite following White Link's policy and contacting the firm 48 hours in advance. White Link said the final decision over whether passengers can stay in their vehicles is made by the master of each ship on the day of the travel and is always made on safety grounds. Mainlander Terry Holt, who has a rare form of muscular dystrophy, visited with his wife Sylvia at the end of July into August 2023. The couple first encountered issues when they travelled from Portsmouth 
on board the St Clair. Despite an advanced request to remain in their car, ferry staff told Terry and Sylvia they could not. After failed attempts to get Terry into a wheelchair and in a lift to the passenger lounge, he was eventually allowed to remain in the vehicle. To avoid a repeat on the way back, the couple contacted Whitelink days in advance of their departure. They arrived for their Victoria of White sailing 90 minutes early, as advised, and were told to wait in a queue. As they boarded, Terry, 79 at the time, was again asked to get out of his car. I said, we've requested to stay, and they said, we can't do that, Terry said. They had a word with the skipper who said, no, we're not taking them. I was then humiliatingly ejected from the ferry. After another wait and an interview with another captain, this time on board St Clair, Terry and Sylvia were eventually allowed to travel in their car. They remember being worried how to get home and the experience left them questioning whether they will come back. If I book 48 hours in advance, as told, I expect to be able to stay in the car, Terry said. It is difficult for someone like me, on a wet deck, to get out of my car and into a wheelchair. Sylvia, 74, said, If they're reporting to be disabled friendly and they're not, this is a major stigma for the island. The couple complained to Whitelink but said the issue was dismissed with an apology. A Whitelink spokesperson said, While customers with mobility issues may request to stay in their vehicles during the crossing, Whitelink cannot guarantee it. The master of the ship will carry out a risk assessment on the day and their decision is always made on safety grounds. Whitelink complies with all legal requirements surrounding accessible travel. The firm says it offers a wide range of support, details of which can be found on its website. By-election for Town Council A town councillor has resigned after admitting to drink driving. Tom Hanley of Ride Town Council appeared at the Isle of Wight Magistrates Court on January the 16th. The 62-year-old admitted to drink driving following an incident on December the 30th, for which he has yet to be sentenced. Hanley was the newest member to join Ride Town Council and the R Ride Group in November 2022. He resigned from his position, representing the Apley and Elmfield Ward, in the days after his court appearance. The notice of vacancy was filed on January the 18th. Hanley's resignation was confirmed at the Ride Town Council meeting last night, Monday, February the 5th, as well as the need for a by-election. Once the seat was vacated, 10 residents of the Apley and Elmfield Ward had to confirm to the Isle of Wight Council they wanted to fill the gap on the Town Council through a by-election rather than by co-option. A date for the by-election has not yet been confirmed, nor a deadline set for candidates to come forward. Postcode is among coolest. An Isle of Wight postcode has been named as one of the coolest places to move to in 2024, according to the Sunday Times. The national newspaper has homed in on what it calls the hottest neighbourhoods to know this year. 
Among the 10 HIP postcodes to feature on the list is PO38, which of course includes Ventnor, St Lawrence and Bonchurch. The article, which can be read in full here, mentions Ventnor as being Queen Vic's favoured seaside retreat. While it says St Lawrence and Bonchurch regularly attracts artistic off-grid types tired of the rat race, it also names a series of businesses and island creatives, including Binel Studios, acclaimed Potter's Sue Paraskeva and Jane Cox, and Rosie Wolfenden, co-founder of the jewellery brand Tatty Divine. The article reads, For strolls and sunbathing, head to Sleepy Steep Hill Cove, or dine on crab-filled pasties amid the quiche of Lady Scarlet's Tea Parlour. It adds that PO38 is for the design junkies. Postcodes in the Highlands, London, Devon and Newcastle also feature on the list. And now we're moving on to white memories and nostalgia. And I have a headline that reads, Tragedy Shrouded in Mystery. It's a summer's evening in July 1826 on the Isle of Wight. A cart drawn by two horses is approaching a landing stage on the foreshore of the Medina at the end of Dodner Lane in Newport. A naval boat, the pit, is waiting there to load the wagon's contents on board. At the reins is George Mundell. With him is his assistant and behind them on the wagon are 44 barrels, each weighing 100 pounds, full of gunpowder and live ammunition from Albany Barracks. This was Mr Mundell's second trip. The first had gone without a hitch and he now had just 25 yards to go before reaching the foreshore and the waiting boat. And then disaster struck. There was a massive explosion, so loud that it was heard in Shanklin and Mr Mundell and the horse nearest the cart were literally blown to pieces, parts of the horse being found on the opposite river bank. A waiting naval officer was also killed instantly. Of the cart, literally nothing remained. What had led up to the incident and what had caused it? The first question is the easier to answer. In 1798, Albany Barracks was built where today's prison stands and it became home to between nearly 2,000 soldiers. By 1826, surplus stocks of gunpowder and bullets had built up at the barracks. It was decided that nearly four tonnes would be shipped back to Portsmouth and George Mundell, a local carrier, was contracted to take the gunpowder to Dodna Hard and the waiting pit in two loads. The Salisbury Journal of July 13, 1826 reported orders were given to the cooper to secure the casks to prevent any friction and blankets were placed on the trucks. The first load was conveyed safely but on its way a quantity of gunpowder had escaped the casks and was scattered along the road. The second load, which consisted of 44 barrels of ball cartridges and loose powder, was likewise conveyed to the riverside, when on the point of stopping to unload, the whole lot went off with a tremendous explosion. George Mundell was killed on the spot. Purvis, one of the seamen of the vessel, was also killed. Mr Mundell's man was very se severely hurt and carried 
away the distance of 25 yards. He is so much hurt that his life is despaired of. Two soldiers who were guarding the ammunition were also dreadfully wounded and have since died. The explosion took place about 25 yards from the residence of Dickens Buckle, Medina Cottage. The family, including their daughter, had just dined. Their consternation may be conceived when we state that not a window remains entire in the whole house. Bullets and glass flying in every direction, the ceiling falling down and the house literally shook to its foundations. Miss Buckle, who was sitting with her back to the window, was cut very much by the glass and a bullet entered just between her shoulders. The trees in the garden are all scorched up as if a large fire had been made under them. The hindermost horse in the truck shafts was completely blown to pieces, part of its carcass being found on the opposite side of the river, and the foremost horse was much injured that he has since been killed, forty bullets being found in various parts of his body. What actually caused the fatal spark is unclear. Strict methods for the handling of gunpowder had been in force for centuries. A 19th century act laid down handling procedures when delivering powder to a ship. There is no reason to doubt the rules were followed, but the inquest a few days later could provide no definite explanation for the fatal spark beyond stating the explosion is supposed to have proceeded from one of the horse's shoes striking fire and some loose gum and some loose powder which fell on the ground owing to the casks not being properly coopered some boats lying in the river were pierced with balls the shock was heard at Cowes, Ride and Shanklin. The inquest verdict was suitably inconclusive. Accidental death of four persons owing to the ammunition being conveyed on an improper truck. Now moving on to my view and Joe Plum writes the headline Make the Isle of Wight look vibrant in the ads. Imagine and I appreciate this may be difficult for some, that you live on the mainland. You've managed to secure a long weekend holiday with the family. It's been a drizzly week, so you're looking to cheer yourself up by booking a lovely break when an advert for the Isle of Wight pops up on your screen. There's a drone shot of a person paddleboarding in the middle of the sea. You see a couple in a little secluded cave miles away from anyone else. You see a man walking his dog along an empty beach and a couple cycling in the middle of nowhere. Does Visit Isle of Wight want you to think that there isn't anyone living here? They want to paint us as a quiet, deserted island where holidaymakers are free to roam without being disturbed by any strange-looking locals. You can paddleboard to your heart's content without ever having your holiday sport by pesky people. I've been paddleboarding, hated it. I am a giant with a very little balance, so I am not the best person to attempt this pastime. It looks lovely on Instagram, but in reality, you're just desperately trying to stay upright as you slowly freeze your nicky-nacky news off, looking at crumbling cliffs while trying to dodge some southern water sewage. 
The picture of this empty and silent island is far from the reality of this loud, lively island, full of creativity and events. Where are an events? We are an events island, rammed with festivals, music gigs, performances, carnivals, sporting events, and so much more. There are the big beasts of the calendar, but also so many other new events that pop up each year. We have incredible people programming an array of amazing events from firm family favourites like the Garlic Festival, Mr Randini magic shows on the seafront, Derek Sandy gigs in pub gardens, cracking shows at Shanklin Theatre, parades through the streets and a superb lineup of bands at places like Strings. Support them, showcase them, put them on the poster. People from the island taking part in amazing things. Not sunset pictures of couples sipping coffees on a bench in the middle of nowhere. If I see another slow motion ferry heading towards a sunset over a deserted island, I may scream. <laughs> and this is a effective view from a patient at St Mary's. I recently had a stay in St Mary's Hospital for quite a big operation that was extremely concerning. The nurses were caring and kind, but were visibly overworked, often flustered and rushing from one patient to another without enough time for personal interaction or patient care. After a lifetime working in senior management, it was obvious to me that there were not enough staff members on duty to handle the patient load, and as a result the quality of care suffered. I worried about how easy it would be to make a mistake that could lead to disaster. For many of us, an error at work may be embarrassing or inconvenient. For those stressed caregivers, if a mistake was made when, say, dispensing drugs, it could be both tragic and career-destroying. One particularly unsettling moment occurred when I was informed that I had to switch wards. Nobody ever told me why and when I asked, nobody appeared to even know. It added to a general sense of disorganisation, and at times, chaos. During the process, my personal belongings were mislaid, which took some time to be found and returned. This slip in management of patients' personal property added an unnecessary layer of frustration and anxiety to what is already a stressful hospital experience. It may seem trivial, but I was halfway through a book. I'm not a fan of TV, so it meant that instead of being able to escape in the pages of my novel, I had little to do for many hours other than to watch what was going on around me, which only increased my sense of disquiet. And other noticeable problems problem was with regards to communication. There were instances after the unscheduled ward move when the switchboard apparently didn't know where I was and messages from my mainland based family failed to reach me. This breakdown in communication, particularly in a setting where understanding and reassurance are crucial, left me feeling somewhat isolated and out of touch at a time when support from your loved ones is most needed. Again, this may seem trivial. Indeed, it does to me now that I am at home and I read what I have written. But it was important at the time. 
It is the failure to get things like this right that leads to a lack of trust in the whole service provided. You ask yourself, if they can't sort the trivia out, what failings are there higher up? I don't wish to criticise the staff who were clearly compassionate and concerned about the situation. I spoke to one lovely lady on the night shift who told me that she had always dreamed of being a nurse and helping to make people better, but she is now looking into different careers because of her disillusionment and frustration. I'm not even sure it is the management's fault. I'm not privy to what resources they have available, and, as the old saying goes, you can't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. Is it all down to money? I don't know. We keep hearing that more money than ever is going into our health service. If that is true, there is something very wrong with the overall system. I know that it would be a waste of time and precious resources to lodge an official complaint. It is not that nobody knows the problems, but nobody ever sorts them out. I suspect that most islanders, like me, are not interested in hearing politicians play blame games over who is at fault. We just want somebody to make the system work for all of us who rely on it. Our health system is free at the point of delivery, but it is not free. Those of us who have contributed towards it all our lives deserve to get what we have paid for. Local Bobby's scheme and new police stations, writes Superintendent Rob, Rob Mitchell. Since my last update, it's been a busy period for policing teams on the island. We've seen some great results in terms of relentlessly pursuing criminals, as well as developments in local policing engagement with the public. Local policing provision has been enhanced with the opening of new premises in Cowes, placing our neighbourhood teams in the heart of the town and providing modern facilities for officers to meet with the public. To ensure quality time and space for meetings, there will be available booked appointments. However, more significantly, this office ensures officers and staff are placed in the heart of the community so they can be more visible to deter crime, engage with the community and listen to concerns. They will base themselves here at all days of the week when they're on duty. There is also a plan to reinstate a more traditional front counter service at Ride in the autumn. The recent launch of the local Bobby scheme again bolsters our commitment to visible policing and exceptional local policing, having dedicated named officers you can contact directly. Their direct contact details are available online, making police more contactable than ever before. An area of crime that concerns our communities is drug-related harm. A recent successful piece of intelligence-led policing resulted in an island-class A drug dealer being jailed for 40 months. Operation Suppress is our approach to cracking down on shoplifting. This is a crime that blights local businesses as well as bringing misery to shop workers who can experience abusive behaviour from some of our worst offenders. We have seen a large increase in reporting of these crimes, which reassures me that victims are more confident in reporting, as they can see action being taken with increases in our charging rate, which puts offenders before courts. Our teams are focusing particularly on habitual offenders, 
which can take time to break the cycle of repeat offending. A persistent off- offender was jailed on January the 10th for 10 weeks for offences at shops in Ryde and Shanklin. Another was jailed for eight weeks for stealing clothes from Sports Direct in Newport and four people were arrested at the start of January in connection with the theft of cigarettes from a shop in Ventnor, two of which were charged with offences. And now for some um, entertainment that's going on on the island. On Sunday the 11th of February at 6.30, these are at Shanklin Theatre, there is the Spotlight Isle of Wight Limited show. On Thursday the 15th to Sunday the 18th of February, Phantom of the Opera. On Friday the 23rd of February, A History of British Mass Murderers. On Sunday the 25th, David Suchet, Poirot and more. And their new spring brochure is out now. And you can book at the box office, which is on 868-000, or book online at www.shanklintheatre.com. New double dates for White Prom's latest offerings. White Prom's Wednesdays are back and are now at two locations. For the first time, each concert will be performed at both 12.30 and at 7.30 monthly on Wednesdays. The lunchtime sessions will be held in the Northwood House Ballroom and lunch can be enjoyed afterwards. Or choose an evening session at the Garlic Farm, where tapas is an option beforehand from 6pm. The first concert this year is on Valentine's Day, February the 14th, starring harpist Mary Reed, who will be conjuring up the romantic spirit. On March the 6th, it is the turn of White Proms founder and X Factor and G4 star Mike Christie singing with Jonathan Hodgson on piano. On April the 10th, there is the chance to enjoy the sounds of Thomas Luke on the piano, Rodney Earl Clark, voice, and Marina Savova, piano, will perform on May the 1st. On June the 5th, it is Steinway artist and award-winning pianist James Longford from Ride. Kate Roby, cello, and Christopher Sheldrake, piano, take to the stage on July the 17th. On September the 4th, Susanna McRae, voice, and Claire Habershaw, piano, will perform. Enjoy Fantasia on October the 23rd, thanks to Chris Hurst, Theorbo, and Emma Marie Cabanova on violin in a lute-based classical and folk music fusion. Tickets are available to book now, and it is advised, as many shows last year were sellouts. Festival hitmakers just keep coming. A fresh batch of acts have been added to this year's Isle of Wight Festival roster, including Jesse J and The Pretenders. The festival, which returns to Sea Close Park this summer, already boasted an enviable line-up, with the likes of The Prodigy, Pet Shop Boys and Green Day all headlining the main stage. Also among the first wave of acts to be announced were The Streets, Keen, Simple Minds, Iconic Britpop, Band Suede, Scouting for Girls and renowned DJ Joe Wiley. But now the likes of Jesse J, The Pretenders and Natalie Embruglia have been added to the roster. The next wave of acts also includes Johnny Marr, 
Feeder, S Club, Tom Main, Sean Ducro, Katie Baser and Wonder Horse. Tickets for the festival, which runs from Thursday, June the 20th to Sunday, June the 23rd, have been on general sale since November of last year. Headlining the main stage on the Friday night will be English electronic group The Prodigy, who also played here in 2006, 2009 and 2015. On Saturday, legendary duo Pet Shop Boys will take to the main stage. American rock heroes Green Day will close the show on the Sunday with their first ever Isle of Wight performance. On Saturday the 24th of February at the Medina Theatre, there is a production called Money for Nothing, which starts at 7.30. The tickets are £25. Money for Nothing is undoubtedly the best Dire Straits tribute in Europe. It's on at the Medina Theatre on the 24th of February. And also at the Medina Theatre on the 22nd of February... His Majesty's Band of the Royal Marines will be playing at 7.30. The history of the Corps of Royal Marines goes back to 1664 when King Charles II sanctioned the formation of the Duke of York and Albany's Maritime Regent Regiment of Foot. And the tickets are £23.50 each and can be obtained by phoning... Eight two three double eight four. Museum and Gallery Dimbola is staging an exhibition dedicated to author Charles Dickens. The Technicolor Dickens, the living image of Charles Dickens, was originally commissioned in 2020 to mark the 150th anniversary of the novelist's death. Now, Dimbola in Freshwater is hosting the show to celebrate 175 years since the publication of David Copperfield, which was partially written whilst the author was staying in Ventnor. A launch event was held this week with plenty of costumes, while the show itself presents Dickens' story through Victorian photography. There is also a film by Jamie Langton called Dickens' Island. During his time here, Charles Dickens befriended Alfred Lord Tennyson, who became godfather to his son Alfred. The exhibition runs until May the 19th. And now we have some letters to the editor. Spending spree from Vanessa Churchman, Halens and Swanmore. Having attended Ride Town Council on Monday last, I was appalled to see a motion passed to spend nearly £500,000 on buying the NatWest building. The town councillors agreed to a loan of 466000 over 30 years to acquire the building. The town council already owns St Thomas's Church, Apley Tower, the Harbour and Vectis Hall, the latter lying dormant and falling into decay. The annual costs on this loan will be £30,282 per annum, on top of everything else. What a legacy for the future generations of this town. Councils have no money except what they raise by taxation, so all the above are being paid for by the people of Ryde. We have food banks and people needing homes, and yet Ryde Town Council continue their spending spree. 
What next, I wonder? The only councillor who voted against this motion was Les Kirby. Meticulous research by David White of Ventnor. Read the letters about my article regarding Michael Maybrick and County Press on the 2nd of the 2nd, 24. Although I did not plan in any way to blacken Maybrick's character on my investigations of him, a lot of interesting modern research information had come to light. Several sources were checked out and made interesting reading. Due to space, I will just quote one, the 2015 book They All Love Jack, Busting the Ripper by film director Bruce Robinson, who wrote The Killing Fields and also wrote and directed cult classic With Nail and I. Robinson spent 15 years of his life and half a million pounds of his own money in an attempt to prove the former ride mayor was the infamous Victorian serial killer Jack the Ripper, who murdered five or more women in East London in 1888. His carefully researched book ran to over 800 pages. The the book appears to have been meticulously researched, as were the other sources I investigated. So, with this knowledge, I decided to include it out of interest, whereas readers, if interested, could then find out more information on Maybrick's life while not forming a factual opinion of either side of Maybrick's life, the Isle of Wight side being meticulously recorded. In my research, I kept to a rule of unbiased journalism, leaving readers to look into it and judge for themselves. Finally, far from blackening Mr Maybrick's name out of propriety, I deliberately did not mention all of what came to light. Real Hope Needed from Peter Shreve, Isle of Wight branch of the National Education Union. Reading Island Uplift in the County Press of the 2nd of February, I recalled a recent conversation with a grandparent unable to access an NHS dentist since before COVID, at the same time recalling the Gothic author Edgar Allan Poe, whose purpose was to emphasise the grotesque, the desolate, the horrible and ultimately abject fear. Mr Seeley talks about the future with temporary payments to NHS practices, recommissioning NHS island contracts a mobile bus to soon be visiting to treat urgent cases. However, these future measures and soon to arrive and temporary payments should be unnecessary. Mr Seeley was first elected in June 2017. There has been a Conservative government since May 2010. What has happened during this time? In the 2000. In the 2023 House of Commons Library Research Briefing Dentistry in England, the background to a new Poe story? In the four years following COVID, the BDA reported 3,000 dentists stopped doing NHS work. In 2023, 75% said they were likely to reduce their NHS commitment in in 2024, creating dental deserts. Less than half of children now see a dentist. An oral hygiene crisis creates a more challenging working environment for pupils and teachers. Children miss school. Poor hygiene often leads to bullying and isolation. 
tooth decay remains the dominant reason for young children needing hospital treatment. I wonder whether when Mr Seeley talks of temporary and soon, he reads Poe, who said, false hope is nicer than no hope at all. Between 2010-11 and 2021-22, funding for dental services in England fell by 8% in real terms. It's time we had some real hope. Mum's View, writes Kate Brett of Newport. I would like to respond regarding MP Bob Seeley's comments about children being home educated. This is in the County Press on the 26th of January 24. His comments have caused some discussion within the home educated network, both locally and nationally. Many of us home educating families have met with Mr Seeley in the past and have discussed home education at length, explained what happens and why, how it all works, the reason for home education and shared the facts, but his views remain the same. His concerns are with these parents who choose to isolate their children, a suggestion not based on fact. The more so a realistic observation is that, yes, some home-educated children are isolated. Their mental health is rock bottom. They are not thriving. This is because those children deserve and wish to be within a suitable school placement. These parents are not electively home-educating their children, but their parents have been left with no choice as school was not suitable for their child. Home-educated children really fall into into two categories. One, those who are opting out of the system who facilitate education to suit their child's individual needs and interests. And two, those who ideally don't want to home-educate but feel they have absolutely no choice for a plethora of reasons. Both of these categories of parents care deeply about their children and want to ensure they are doing the best they can. None have intentions to isolate or cause harm. I think if Mr Seeley wants to make his broad statements about a minority of children who are not being taught and are drifting into depression, isolation or worse, he really needs to look at the deeper causes and reasons for this and focus on those families' needs. Instead of those who are opting for an environment where their children thrive outside of the school system. And from Paul Knocker in Bembridge, what is the cost of net zero? A recent interview with Joe Kaiser, chair of Siemens Energy, was a serious reality check on the current financial and practical constraints facing the renewable industry from a manufacturer's perspective. His comment on the fairy tale thinking about net zero was particularly revealing as energy from wind is central to the government's plans to meet the net zero targets. Two of the key issues related to the belief that our future energy security depends on more wind farms were not covered in this report. First, the need to back up intermittent wind energy and solar with gas, nuclear power or battery storage. Second, and even more significant, is the lifespan of turbines, which seems to have been ignored in both Conservative and Labour plans for net zero and the transition away from fossil fuels. 
A high quality modern wind turbine will generally last for 20 years, although this can be extended to 25 years, depending on the environmental conditions, particularly the extreme loads offshore, and that maintenance procedures have been followed. Source TWI global.com. This means all the existing 11,500 wind turbines will have to be decommissioned and replaced by 2060. Can we assume this has been factored into the latest estimates and plans for future UK energy security, as well as the full economic and social cost of net zero? Is saving road a vanity exercise, says Stephen Rushbrook of Newport. I don't care. I'll be the one to say it. Saving the military road is a pointless vanity exercise and a waste of good money for a short-term fix at vast expense, both financially and environmentally. There are more important things and indeed roads to concentrate on, like what to do about Leeson Road. It's a nice road, to be sure, but it is in the way of coastal erosion and built on extremely problematic geology that is pretty much guaranteed to keep slipping and falling no matter what is done. More than that, it is simply not an essential route. Any engineering solution is going to cost too much and harm the aesthetics and ecology of the area too much and even then would be a short-term solution as it might slow erosion but it won't stop it. The road is going to disappear sooner or later. We just have to decide if simply delaying the inevitable is worth it. To be honest, it really isn't. And that's all we have time for today. So it's goodbye from Madeline. And goodbye from me, Morris. The BBC In Touch programme follows and there is no scaffolding news this week. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Good evening. If you ever thought that there were limits to the ways visually impaired people could have fun, the next 20 minutes should get rid of that notion. That's what we believe to be the only group of blind Morris dancers in the UK. And possibly, given how British the tradition is, the world. We'll be finding out how and why they do it later on in the programme. But if Morris dancing isn't your bag, how about a game of baseball? I never completely understood the rules, though when I finally made it to the States and went to a live game of what I thought of as American cricket, the friendly spectators in San Francisco were keen to help me out. So what's happened there? The man for the uh, Chicago White Sox Stole second base, which means he ran from first to second. And the catcher tried to throw the ball to try to get him out, but he was safe. I'll tell someone on the way out, that was a stolen base, I'll say. (laughs) What I've only just realised is that, like most sports, there's a blind version of baseball, which is now quickly taking hold over here, especially in the north of England. Shiraz Chohan, the founder of the Lancashire Lions blind baseball team, as well as the UK Blind Baseball Association. Shoaib Nazir, who also plays for the Lancashire Lions, and Ray Clements, who plays for the Liverpool Blind Trojans, were keen to put me straight. When we got together, Shiraz gave me his best pitch 
for how blind baseball works. First and foremost, you have a ball with bells in for audibility. And the first thing people ask you is, do you pitch the ball? And the answer is no, because the ball is hit out of your hand. You have three strikes to actually strike the ball in the valid area between second and third base. So if you look at baseball, it's the left side of the field between a 27-metre designated area. So what you're saying is you drop the ball and then hit it, do you? The ball's got six holes in it, with bells in, obviously. Majority of people hold the two top holes and you strike the ball out of your hand. Whoa. Can you get enough distance on that? Practice makes you perfect or as good as you can be. And a lot of our players have really developed from initially starting and trying to hit the ball and not making any kind of connection or a valid connection to get it in the playing area. With a lot of practice and coaching, a lot of them have come on in leaps and bounds and then you actually have to run around first base where there's an audible bleeper. And you have to run around that and get to second base where there is a sighted clapper to get you in. So you've got a batter and you don't need a pitcher. What about the outfielders? How does that work? Well, you have five outfielders and you also have a catcher. So as you hit the ball and you hit it over the 27-metre line, it'll be called valid shot. And that's when the fielding team will start to locate the ball. And as soon as one of them players has got the ball, one of the base coaches for the fielding side will shout 2-2-2 two, 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 to orientate them to throw the ball into the glove. All they can tell you is where they are and all they can say is 2-2-2. Two, two, two. Two, 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 two. Great job. How many people are actually playing at the moment in Britain? At the moment, Peter, we have a pool of roughly 60 to 80 players, which in the past year has grown and we think would reach the capacity of 100, 120 by the end of 2024. We're just trying to make it snowball down to south. We're working with Surrey and Cambridge is in process as well of setting up a session. So presumably you're trying to get enough for a league. Yeah, last season we had five respective clubs participating. We named it a festival as an example. The Liverpool Trojans held a festival, Sheffield Strikers, South Wales Dragons, Lancashire Lions and Manchester Vibe. But overall, to give them more incentive to have a league, points would be collated at the end of the season, could have a champion. You mentioned the Liverpool Trojans. Also with us, a couple of players who've really taken to the game. One of them is Ray Clements, who plays for the Trojans. How did you get involved with blind baseball? So I lost my sight on my 49th birthday, and it was sort of like my world was starting to fall apart. And then I got in touch with a beautiful charity called Bradbury Fields, which run an organisation within it called Savvy, which is sports activities for the visually impaired. And then I also went to a taster day, which I had a go of goalball. Archery was really good at archery as well. And baseball, I took to baseball straight away and then joined the team, the Liverpool Blind Trojans. I mean, the people I've met within the sport, some of the coaches are amazing. So what we're going to do, we're going to move your shoulders to line you up. We're going to come this way. That's third base. That's second base. Anywhere in the middle. This zone is where we want to go for. Okay. Because I gather it made quite a difference to your life. I mean, you were pretty fed up at the time, I think. 
I was, it was my 49th birthday present, to be honest. That was the morning I woke up when it started going. And, you know, at first it messes with your mental health, and it really does, whether I'll be able to cope, whether I'll be able to survive, whether I'll be able to carry on with life. But, you know, the camaraderie within the sport, you know, you're getting to know other players. It's great to be around people that have no excuses. It's empowered me, and it's given me that drive for living again. And there really aren't any barriers, are there? Because I think for a start, it's men and women. There's a great range of age. Just about anybody yes. can play. Yes. Well, we went to Bologna in Italy with the GB squad in October. And we brought a bronze medal home from there. And, you know, there was a couple of people within the Holland team who were visually impaired but was also in wheelchairs. And it didn't stop them at all. I mean, it's mind-blowing. It's inspirational to meet people from all over the world, all who were visually impaired with different forms of sight loss, but have no excuses, no barriers, and an absolutely loving life. Let me bring in Shoaib. How did you get involved in baseball, Shoaib? In March last year, I went to Italy. And it was more of a social trip, but I also tried baseball there under the obviously, outside hot climate as well. The weather was nice and thought, you know, this is a sport that I could actually get into. It gives you that freedom to kind of run around as well. With other blind sports, it's hard to run when you've got low sight because you don't know where you're running or what you're doing. But with the audible cues that we have with blind baseball, it gives you that freedom to run and anyone could do it. And Ray, I mean, I gather you've really taken to this game, having not played it as a sighted person. For me, you know, I was losing my sight and I was thinking, would I be able to deal with this? And then somebody puts a blindfold on you and tells you to run as fast as you can at this beeping sound. And then when you get to the beep, you do a sharp left and you run to a clap. It's invigorating. It's freeing. We better explain this because people are always confused. Why would you wear a blindfold? there's different forms of sight loss so it levels the playing field for everybody i think it makes it more fun as well to be honest you know what i think anybody should come along go blindfold on and have a go run into a base they don't understand when i say you feel free three two one play ball And Shiraz, I gather you are now really looking for more players from kind of all over the UK, really. We're working with the British Blind Sports. It's getting us out there. It's getting the game to a wider audience. And we're showpiecing out of the taste of days to young and old. Let me just ask the other two, just quickly to end. Do you think this is going to catch on, Ray? Yeah, I personally think it's going to explode. For me, it's an absolutely amazing, wonderful sport. You know, I often say to anybody, the only person who's stopping yourself is you. Come along to Blind Baseball and be free. Get out there and shine. And plus the fact it's a chance to meet other people like yourself. Shoaib, Paralympic sport, maybe? I think it's in 2032 that it might be involved. Everybody should try it. Not even just for the blind and the visually impaired. Even the sighted volunteers, they're a big part of the sport as well. Taking us to and from competitions, getting involved with the clapping, the coaching. Without their sight, we wouldn't be able to play. It will skyrocket and it'll be a good sport. Well, if people hadn't heard of it before, they've heard of it now. Shiraz Chohan, Shoaib Nazir and Ray Clements, thank you all very much indeed. Now, if that was American-derived, you can't get much more British than this. Well, 
You Heard Them, the group we're featuring, based in Malvern in Worcestershire, have given themselves the name of So Excited. So that seems like a good place to start. I'm joined by their squire, that's what they call the boss in Morris Dancing, Shirley Sheridan, and group members Jean Frey and Arnold Penny. Shirley, so if we can start with you, who came up with that name which just to make absolutely clear is so excited yes but peter you really don't pronounce it like that because no one would understand who we were it has to be so excited right that would have woken everyone up won't it okay so who came up with that idea then well one afternoon of course we were having our discussion and meeting in a pub after our hours practice and of course our name had to be something that identified us as being visually impaired probably collectively we all came upon excited because all of us once upon a time we could see and now we can't so we are excited <laughs> yeah i think i got it now <laughs> but, but of course we are also excited at morris dancing Some listeners, me included, may not know very much about Morris dancing, except that it quite often happens in pubs that we're in at the time. Just give us a very brief bit of background. What is it? It's an English tradition that has been going about 500 years. It's basically a display of movement, music and colour. And it's gradually evolved over the centuries. And it did decline in the 1800s. Cecil Sharp a folk enthusiast. He revived it at the beginning of the 1900s to what a Morris side is today, which is composed of a squire, a foreman and a bagman. So what's the story of how your group got started? Well, we've been going five years now. Absolutely brilliant, I think. We all knew one another from a peer support group that was run by our local sight loss charity, Sight Concern. And our advice and support officer, Jenny Douglas, she was a great Morris enthusiast. And she thought if she could get half a dozen of us together, that would be a nice social group, a way of keeping fit and having a bit of fun at the same time. She managed to persuade a sighted accordion player to come along to give us a bit of music. And it took off from there, really, because it was just a fun thing to do. It was initially just practice on a Friday afternoon for an hour in the rental room next door to a pub. And new pubs would come into it somewhere. Well, of course. <laughs> Let me bring in Arnold, because you're a dancer in the group. I mean, tell me about your level of sight and, and how you got started in Morris dancing. I've got advanced uh, glaucoma. I've got very narrow vision now and very misty vision. But I can still just about make out the colours and the people in the Morris dancing side. I and my wife have been dancers for years. We've done folk dancing and particularly Scottish country dancing. Mm. Although an old man, I probably was the only one who'd done dancing regularly in the group. I came foreman eventually, and foreman was responsible for putting together the dance and the choreography and so forth. A lot of it is traditional. I mean, it's a question of sticking, which we call um, banging sticks together. Now, in our case... We're using white plastic pipes, 
So hopefully we don't do ourselves too much damage if we hit each other. We stick and then we form routines between the sticking to the music. I mean, if you were starting from scratch, Shirley, how difficult is it to learn Morris dancing? Well, I was starting from scratch. I didn't know anything about Morris dancing five years ago. So it is about describing the step and doing it until you feel it's right. You actually have to walk people through it. You cannot demonstrate in the normal way. I get sort of frustrated with people because they keep going wrong. And Shirley's got much more patience with them than I have, I think. But half the time we just end up laughing, though. (laughs) People will have heard in our blind baseball item that sighted people do get involved to help with orientation if you like i mean does something like that happen in morris dancing well not really no i mean the only sighted people we've got are in the band once we've got the figure that we move around in our brain we seem to be able to get it going well let me bring in gene who's been waiting very patiently because you're part of the band are there any adaptations there and what instrument do you play well i am the 81 year old drummer in the so excited band since 2021 and having been diagnosed with macular degeneration suddenly losing a lot of my sight and having to give up playing my beloved piano because i couldn't see the music I was asked if I would take on the role of a drummer and play the large 14-inch, brightly coloured red and yellow drum emblazoned with our logo in a band I'd never heard of. I mean, had you done any Morris dancing up until then? No, no Morris dancing and no drumming. The drum is a very important part. The dancers need to hear clearly a strong beat. And sometimes... When learning new dances, only the drum is needed to help count and pace out the steps. Now, you take your show on the road, I think. I mean, what sort of venues do you go to? We've been to Bus Fest. We've been in the Priory Park in Great Malvern. We've been in carnivals. That's absolutely great. And, of course, folk festivals and beer festivals. Just out of interest, I mean, Arnold, what sort of reaction do you get from your audiences? Do they realise that most of you are visually impaired? I think sometimes they don't. I think they're quite astonished when we actually do it. I remember the first time we danced out with a very experienced side and they were just gobsmacked that we were able to sort of do the same dances that they did and get through them. Just finally, perhaps starting with Jean, I mean, what has this meant to you doing this? Well, it's actually a privilege to be part of such a worthwhile fundraising cause and it gives me the knowledge and satisfaction that as a visually impaired person I can still contribute to society and, of course, my own well-being. And actually, playing a drum in a band at 81 is rather fun. Oh, well, yeah, I, I mean, I've had great fun from it. But I think we ought to mention... Our fundraising, you know, Shirley has a guide dog and I think we've got other guide dogs in the side. We do raise money for guide dogs and I think that's one of my biggest satisfactions. Shirley, it sounds like you're the youngster in the group as well. Oh, no, no, there's a couple younger than me. Us dancers, we are energetic, you know, we have life. We do skip and jump and clash and make lots of noise. Well... I suspect you've inspired other people to maybe have a go themselves. Shirley Sheridan, Arnold Penny, Jean Frey, thank you all very much indeed.
And if you're part of an activity which is a little unusual or you think you might be the only ones doing it, do let us know. Next week, back to Hard Grind, we'll be discussing a recent YouGov poll which, amongst other things, found that almost half of the businesses in the UK don't have accessible recruitment processes and a quarter wouldn't be willing to make workplace adaptations to employ a blind or partially sighted person. We'd like to hear from you if you feel you've been the victim of this kind of discrimination and also from employers brave enough to tell us about their own experiences and attitudes to employing blind people. You can email in touch at bbc.co.uk, leave your voice messages on 0161 836 1338 You can also go to our website for more information or to download tonight's or previous editions of the programme. That's bbc.co.uk forward slash in touch. But for now, playing us out one last performance from So Excited. Meanwhile, from me, Peter White, tonight's producers, Fern Lullum, and studio managers Sue Stone Street and John Cole, goodbye. <laughs>